Hey folks, welcome to episode 20 of the Track and Field Performance Podcast. My talk today was with Coach Keenan Briggs. Keenan was a former elite triple jumper who transitioned into coaching a few years ago, namely starting out at Matter Day High School and now is the lead coach at Leap Squad Track Club. Keenan and I had a really good discussion about developing triple jumpers from freshman year right through to the senior age group. A couple of weeks ago, a friend approached me and said, Colm, I think you should get some high school expertise on your podcast to make sure that you're covering all different age groups and performance levels. And I had to agree with him. And Keenan was the first person I thought of. Keenan has done some great work by posting some high quality and intentional content across his social media channels for many years. And I actually stumbled across his page over a decade ago as a curious jumper looking for information. So I really think you'll enjoy this episode. Again, thank you to TrackBarn for the continued support. If you'd like to purchase any of their site-wide goods, I would encourage you to use the promo code TNF10 at the checkout. And as always, guys, thank you for your listenership and enjoy the episode. Briggs, thank you very much for joining me this afternoon or um, early afternoon for yourself in California. How are you doing today? Man, I'm doing wonderful. Thank you for having me. And how's everything with you? Doing very well. Sunny in Louisiana at the moment. It's been a bit temperamental as of late, but yeah, I'm, I'm doing fantastic, I have to say. Great. Great. So, Keenan, I've been following your content, probably dating back to 09 when you were a triple jump athlete, former professional athlete at that. And you've really transitioned into the world of coaching, namely in high school coaching. You've kind of created or cultivated this brand that is, you know, becoming widespread on a lot of the social media platforms. And it was funny. You were one of the first people that came to mind when a coach approached me two weeks ago and said, Colm, I think you need to get more high school coaches on the podcast. And so someone who can break down a technical event right through a variety of age groups is certainly someone that many people can learn from and really I mean it when I say I thought of you almost instantaneously but this didn't this journey didn't happen overnight and uh, I'd love to learn a little bit more about how you progressed from being that pro athlete to now someone who's a content creator and ultimately one of uh, the widely known high school coaches out there especially when it comes to triple jumping. Wow. Thanks for the intro. Um, yeah, I guess that the transition from athlete to mentor, sports consultant, coach, um, it was accidental. Um, you know, I had been competing, uh, 2011 indoors. I had a quad injury, uh, bounced back for the outdoors and I had a new just devotion. Basically, I'm like, you know what, I'm really going to push forward um, for my career athletically. And just like many athletes out there post-collegially, there's just no money. You know, it's either you work full-time and you train every now and then, or you train full-time and eat a cup of noodles every day, you know? And so I was trying to find a perfect balance. Um, at, the, at the time I was working as a, a sports trainer and, um, I just ended up getting the high school gig and it was just so many hours, you know, high school gig. Yes, it's two hours a day, but it's a lot of kids. And I put everything into what I do, just like many of coaches. We put everything, put endless hours 
into it. And so um, I just found myself not able to balance social life. You know, I was single. Um, friends didn't have money to go out, you know, and mind you, post-collegially, you're between, you know, 23, 26, you know, you're still out. And so I uh, had a hard time balancing that aspect. Um, then 2017, um, you know what, let me go back. 2014 is where I had an I identity crisis because I was no longer the athlete. You know, as an athlete, when you grow up and you're good and you're talented, there's always people that know you. Oh, oh that's that one guy. He runs fast or jumps far. And I wasn't getting that anymore. You know, it was, oh, that's just another guy out of college competing. And um, I was starting to fall away from the athlete to a civilian. And that transition is really, really tough. And um, the, the part that's tough is I didn't know who I was. So I, we had to re-identify who I was gonna be, um, how I can celebrate wins and losses without physically competing. Um, you know, it, that was a huge transition in my life, um, which can be a whole nother conversation. But, um, but when I decided to um, really dive in was when my high school athletes said they wanted to go division one. At the time they were jumping 39 and 40 feet to my junior, they're both juniors. And I said, okay, well, we got to start putting in work in the off season. So I brought the off season program to modern day and I worked for free. I just trained before them and I would train them after. Um, and fast forward, they improved. Ryan Finney improves um, six feet, eight inches, graduated from TCU. Um, Art Hinojosa, who's now the coach at modern day, um, he improved uh, five and a half feet, graduated from the University of Laverne. And that also wore down on my legs, wore down on my time to train, wore down on my um, just physical peak performance. It wore down on all that aspect of it. And then um, 2017, when Dominique Rutolo and Titan Rutolo um, were entering into their junior and sophomore years, they just couldn't afford a private school. And we were trying to figure out how do we make it work? Um, you know, do they just transfer schools and I train them or whatever? We ended up saying, well, they have marks that are good enough for the college meets. You know, let's, um, let's do that. So they both had to improve. You know, at the time Titan was jumping 39 feet and the college board is 40 feet. You know, uh, Dominique was at 38.4 unofficially, and um, they both improved four feet that year. But the reason why um, I personally had to make the transition was because I gave them my schedule. So I gave up the track meets that I would go to, and I switched, you know, my uniform for a hat. And now I coach them at those meets. And I already knew I couldn't do coaching and competing at the same time just because of the, uh, of the effort and um, the time it takes to do all that. And so, um, yeah, that was that transition where I switched over to giving up and re not retiring. I never will say that as an athlete, but where I just said, you know what, I'm going to stop the 
high performance level piece of training and put that effort into the athletes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And people kind of describe that shift from becoming selfish to selfless. It mm. seemed like it happened all very kind of quickly for you. But from what I'm hearing you say, it sounds almost very natural at that, you know, I feel I've seen many athletes kind of go towards the coaching spectrum and not fully commit because maybe, and rightly so, they have more in their legs and they feel like there's distance within them, but I'm sure you did too. Um, mm -hmm. But just that kind of natural selfishness just comes a little bit more to them maybe than, than it did to yourself and they stay longer in the athlete bracket before moving into the coaching one. But uh, yeah, it, it absolutely makes sense. And I completely agree with you as well when you discuss the struggles of being a post-collegiate and, and trying to make that decision of whether to work full-time and be kind of showing up with less than ideal energy towards performing at your peak or um, essentially trying to live off nothing, which is very, very hard to do. And the college system really simplifies life in, in such a mm. great way that we almost take for granted for so long. Um, I don't know what your college experience was like, but when I reflect on mine, you know, very little things were on my plate other than, of course, showing up to class and um, managing my lifestyle, which is, of course, made very easy for you when you're in it, especially when you're in a Division One school. But um, yeah, it's, it's a big transition and not many people are ready for it, especially when other avenues haven't been opened up before or alongside the athlete identity. And uh, that's funny in my kind of my work or my full-time job, I'm a career coach and I speak with student athletes all the time, people who are committed to going pro, but haven't really put much stock in what their major or their studies will actually convert them into. And mm -hmm. that is what definitely heightens the level of anxiety they may feel when it becomes the time to turn that page or when they're faced with that, that kind of ultimatum of do I continue? Do I not? And I would encourage every athlete that goes along their college tenure. And I don't know about you. You might agree with me with this is that so, um, you know, frequent thought into what you're going to do with life after is, is something that you should cultivate in sync with the athlete identity as you're progressing. And I think yeah. you can, it just, mm -hmm. because it, it allows you to hand over the baton much easier versus um, something that becomes a real tussle for a lot of people. I read articles of, I read one today of a very, very well-known Irish athlete talking about his bounce back from injury and how he watched on the sidelines with resentment and uh, almost bitterness towards his competitors who were running slower than him that he was capable of doing. And it's like, that doesn't really bring the best out in us by the sounds of it. And yeah. I'm not saying that, you know, you should become immune to those things or that he he should feel bad for feeling the way he did. But I, I'd have to think as well that the more other things that we can have to occupy ourselves within reason, it does help for a little bit of when that time comes to not have to completely reinvent yourself because that sounds rather scary what you're describing there. Yeah, it was a complete jump off metaphorically um, from athlete to other. Yeah. You know, yeah. yeah. So as you're beginning your coaching journey, did you 
kind of implement your own program in the beginning or where did you start with these athletes? Because as someone like yourself who probably made up a great deal of knowledge over the years as being an athlete, like what was the process like of, of coaching these kids and where did you start with them? What did you see was lacking? Um, well, well, the first thing was the lacking part was me. Um, when I started high school coaching, I had already been coaching for uh, about 10 years, about nine okay. to 10 years. So um, all the mistakes were made in the first 10 years. You know, I started as a personal trainer, working with adults, you mm -hmm. know, um, creating results, thinking outside the box. And then I was introduced to the National Underclassman, which is a football combine company that travels the U.S. Um, and I would hop on a plane and be sent to Washington and Oregon. I've seen thousands and thousands of athletes um, and did clinics with them on how to run and, and jump. And each camp would have 500 kids and we would do 15 camps, you know, in the summer. Um, so I was analyzing and watching movements and seeing all these things. And that was when I was 21, 22, 23 years old, you know, um, at Cal State LA. And so when I finished that, I, 2009, I ended up, um, 2007, I worked with athletes only. In 2009, I um, was working at Athletic Republic in, in Orange County. And um, when I was there, they had a set system, a set protocol. You know, each day they were on, you know, lesson one, day two, lesson two, and so on. And so I met with Steve Swanson, who at that time was the scientist that put together those actual um, protocols. And I ran them. I ran all of them, physically ran them. And I saw the improvement. And then I said, okay. Then I studied what each one did to the physical body, what the neural system was responding to and, and all these things. And I said, okay, I, I understand, you know, the um, fatigue threshold and how to do all these things. Okay, great. And then I took three athletes, um, Dustin Holtz, Kale Kavanaugh, and, um, um, Reich, Victoria Reich, and uh, one was a pole vaulter, Victoria, and the other two were sprinters. Took them from 11-4 to 10-9 um, together that year. Victoria was already good at what she did in pole vault, but she became durable. And so I said, okay, something is up here. And then that very next year is where I started working at Modern Day. So I just brought that program down to, to them. And um, the part where I got to learn was those three athletes were already upperclassmen, juniors and seniors. Then I was thrown into, okay, now I have freshmen who aren't the fastest. I would get the kids that didn't know what they were doing. They would try out, if they're fast, go to sprints. If they were strong, they would do hurdles. And then the rest of the kids would come to me. Mm. And so um, I started to assess their movements and I would see that their knees would touch for the girls They would stand and they just had horrible alignment. Um, they never seen triple jump. I would ask them why they came to the track. Mm -hmm. And majority of them said, cause I want to get in shape or I want a six pack or I'm here to use track and field to get faster at soccer and football. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, all right. So my job now is just to have the kids enjoy their experience. Mm -hmm. So I went from results driven to just let's have fun. If you come back next year, then we can shift into the next part of it. 
Um, so mm. the learning that I, I received was how do I set them up and plant the seed to create these, um, the value that track and field is a lifestyle, not a sport, because you cannot be out of shape and be great at track and field. Mm-hmm. You can be out of shape and be a great pitcher. You can be mm-hmm. a great quarterback. You know, you can be at 80% and have the greatest game ever. And track and field, 80% of 100, you know, of 100 meter um, sprint, you're going to mm-hmm. get 80% of your results. Mm-hmm. So I started to assess the athletes. And um, when I did that, I realized I'm dealing with four different teams. And it's four teams for girls, four teams for the boys. So mm-hmm. I had eight different teams. So I said, okay, I have to figure out how to manage, you know, 20 something jumpers and manage prepubescent, you know, girls and boys, how, how to talk to a 13 year old, you know, 15 year old, 14 year old girl, how to talk to a 17 year old boy. And um, I just pretty much documented all of the interactions that I had with all these kids. Um, and then I got into the coaching aspect. So I just took a lot of data the first few years. Um, And Kyra Coley, her sophomore year, um, her and Jasmine Moss were the only two that were returned um, their junior year from that original group. Mm -hmm. And Kyra told me, she said, you don't tell us good job enough. And I realized where it came from because I just, you know, I came off the track and I'm watching women triple jumpers jump 47 you know I'm, I'm watching you know um at the time Kristen Chandler jumping 55 and I go to a practice and I'm watching these young girls can't make the pick <laughs> you know or they can't run it's just like oh my gosh so I had such a high uh standard for them that I had to realize it's not my standard it's what they are looking for and what they want so then I switched my coaching philosophy to they tell me what they're looking for and then once we agree upon what it is that um that they want that i can coach them towards that and i'll coach them in a certain way toward towards their um the best way that they can receive the information and i think that is that base that took about two two to three years um for kids to come back the first part and the second part were to learn the psyche of kids, learn the development of kids, the motor skill of kids, knowing that they're 15 now, 16, you know, next year, they have a completely new body. So all these different aspects of, you know, the physiological world, I was like, okay. So that is where I started, was with understanding my demographic. Yeah, that's, that's beautifully put. I, I, it makes me think of kind of this statement that we have sometimes in higher education. It's like meet, meet the student where they are and don't try to categorize them or summarize who you want them to be because it is based on it. Well, perfectly, as you described it, a set standard that you have, and that could be, that could trickle into a multitude of different domains. It could be performance-based. It could be attitude-based. It could be, of course, uh, mentally again, you might see yourself as someone who's extremely resilient, but then do you, or or grateful, and then it frustrates you when you don't meet someone else handle the scenarios Mm -hmm. or the setbacks with gratitude, or better yet, that they don't have that natural 
a diligence that you might feel you have or proactive when when I fe- when I saw a problem I always you know researched it and so forth and it can almost uh, make you feel like they're not trying right and in some mm-hmm. respects you might be right but in some respects you might also be wrong to categorize them and uh, place them in this box where it's not going to bring them any further on into their personal development you know if that makes sense yeah 100%. Um, yeah so I guess when you've mentioned those two phases that you've gone through I believe that many look for great high school coaches uh, with respect to triple jumping or they would like that more Keenan Briggs existed out there and so I've noticed when I'm watching your content that you break down things, the fundamentals extremely well. And I've noticed that through your YouTube channel, because as I said, you've been posting online for quite some time now. Um, Over this span of exposure to high school athletes, how do you teach them the skills that are related to triple jumping? Because as you talked about in your early career, it seemed like you focused an awful lot on the engine development through your exposure with those high level athletes and what worked for you. But mm-hmm. um, I'm sure like, at least from my experience, coaching young athletes, like that coordination piece is so vital because they're just yeah. all over the place sometimes. Yeah. Um, the, the place where I started is, like you said, I meet them where they are. And then I, I not only meet them where they are, but I speak to them from where they are. And I mean, in a sense of uh, Tati, she was a, a freshman that came out. She must've been like five, nine. And her toes and her knees would touch when she would stand up. And she came to me, she's like, hey, can I triple jump? And I said, no, you can't because your legs are going to fall off. And the way, so I looked at it, at it as she wants to triple jump. How can I provide that service? Okay, so how do I get her knees to go from turning in to turning straight? And so I would communicate my plan with her. I would tell her, I'm going to work on these three or four things. Be patient with me. We're going to assess in about a month. You're going to miss two track meets or we're not going to triple jump for two track meets. Are you okay with this plan? Do you trust me? That being level of being open, um, the kids trust you. They feel safe. And so we would do um, specifically, you know, pretty much all rehab stuff. So, you know, rehab, prehab isn't the, the term we use now, but I would treat them as if, okay, something's wrong. Let's fix it. And then build that base up. Um, and the base that is, for me, the most important, the two are time under tension. How do we do time under tension with the minimum level of impact? How do we lighten the load, but train the body? And when I was able to find that, um, the athlete's success and confidence sped up. It intensified so many times because when you leave a workout, that's five minutes, right? Let's say you and I were to work out, five mm-hmm. minute workout. Even if it was a hard workout, you're like, it's five minutes. Like I can do that all day, you know? But if we do an hour workout, we're gonna be like, oh man, like I can do that when I have a good meal, when I'm rested, like it's discouraging. And so I said, how can I create an environment where their body is accepting, but it's the most effective workout 
to where their joints and their, their body can recover without maximum impact. And so I went back to the basics with, um, you know, the therapy stuff, you know, and going through rehab and all those pieces. So Rick Stasi, uh, my strength coach, like myself, Dave Dawson and Brandon Talbot were all ranked in the world at the same time, the same year at the same moment. Um, and he had us doing lunges and squats and he made weight room out of our body. We didn't touch a weight at all. And you would think that you have to have weight training to get stronger, but our physical body is a weight room itself. When we squat, we're lifting our body weight. And so um, a lot of coaches have that philosophy, you know, moving your body first and et cetera. Um, but what I really broke it down to was I want to figure out how many pounds of pressure can I create and handle time under tension. So if I'm doing 400 squats, obviously it's a ridiculous number, right? But I'd rather do 400 squats than lift 400 pounds four times. 400 squats is going to teach my, my body mechanics, my motor skills, how to squat and load correctly if I'm doing it correctly. It's going to, it's going to build elasticity. It's going to increase my range of motion. It's going to open up my hips versus 400 pounds, you know, 10 times. It's just going to be a lot of strain on my back. It's going to be, I'm going to be thinking about how to get through that workout and all those things. And so as that set up, it started to build the base and the foundation for the athletes to where their body weight was nothing to them. And so now when we do plyometrics and we do bounding, their body weight is nothing to them because they understand the concept of running and jumping is bent leg to straight. That's all running and jumping is. And so when they understood that, and not only did they know mentally, but they were instinctually reacting and completing that posterior chain and moving, like all that stuff was happening in order. And they were able to get so much stuff done correctly that when I said, okay, try triple jump, we, it's already been taught, you know, the, the checkpoints and the movement. So um, Maddie, Madison Forbes, she's um, a sophomore now in high school, but when she introduced triple jump, I just said, try it. And she went 32 feet her first time ever jumping mm -hmm. from six steps. But she had done five years of that base training and long jump and gone through the mechanics. So mm -hmm. I really spend a lot of time on the base training, even with my um, freshmen or whoever that come out when season starts. They don't do anything sport specific for that first month. Yeah. But you know, but I had the luxury of, I had luxury of a private school. So I had a couple other athletes than, than most. So I understand my situation was uh, a different environment. However, my club team is everyone else, you know, and it's the same type of results. So um, it's really putting focus on being like having a specific intent for their movement patterns before they progress to the next phase of the training. And it's not, by time. It's not, okay, we're going to do four weeks of this and then we're switching to that. No, so we're going to start with this. We're going to assess it in four weeks. And if um, your body's ready, then we'll advance to the next part. And if not, we spend more time in this same phase until you get it. Yeah, that makes sense. So you're not deciding an entire macro cycle in advance of the year. You're saying, here's what I'd ideally like to accomplish in the first cycle. 
and then we'll pretty much decide what the next one looks like afterwards. Some, of course, plan, mm-hmm. you know, in a year as if it's going to turn out perfect. And of mm-hmm. course, I think many learn within a few years that that writing in pencil is very helpful. Um, it, it does make sense what you're saying, and, and it almost suggests to me that you would not underestimate underestimate with that population the basics in terms of don't underestimate what they don't know. In other words, performing a squat and getting familiar with that kind of coordination pattern and unlocking the hip and teaching how to kind of keep the knees and toes in line in a, in a very simple uh, contextual sense is, is supremely powerful for moving on to a more complex task um, mm-hmm. thereafter. Yep. And so yeah. go ahead. Um, yeah, like just to add to that, it's, most kids don't know how to move. They've never been taught before. And the part that we as coaches, and I see it happen all the time, is we, we have a superstar stud athlete. Mm-hmm. And we just assume that because they're good, they know it already. Mm-hmm. No, they just are just stronger and faster than the other kid. You know, I, I had uh, an athlete that, you know, jumped very far, as far as my varsity athletes and was only a freshman. Well, good job. Go with the freshman. Because the conversation with the freshman are, let's work on lunges, squats, bounding, landing flat-footed. But I, I jump as far as the varsity. That's great. But you're a freshman in the conversations we're having. Yeah. You know, versus the seniors, I'm talking about postural changes, you know, angles, um, like so many things that are just like intricate details. And um, it's just a different classroom. You know, so the, the thing I've noticed is that sometimes we as coaches forget and we get excited and then we use the athlete's performance. And I say use specifically because, yes, this athlete has, could score in four events in the state and win. Great. So then you won. You got four championships each year, all four years. Get to college. Athletes burnt out and tired and done. Mm-hmm. You know, so what I would really look at is, how much time do I have with that athlete? If they're a freshman, I got four years to develop this athlete. So we're training to, my goal is to have you jump your goal that you want one time at the end of season. And so my, my overall calendar gets longer versus how do we get you good this year? We built a base because as an athlete, you know how it is too. You can have multiple fouls, always false starts throughout the whole season, but somehow you ended up winning a national championship. You forget about all those bad times, this long bus ride back, everything, you, all the fouls, you forget about everything. You're like, I, I won. So the kids get to understand, you know, uh, our job as, as a coach is just to get you to your goal once. <laughs> yeah. That's all we got to do, you know, and um, yeah, I know I'm going off on tangents, but um, yeah. Not really, though, because I, I hear what you're saying. And in, in essence, is that you're also teaching the ebbs and flows of the sport as well, like what the reality is like. And I have seen a lot of athletes drop out, not just because of physical burnout, but just being acclimated towards success um, or, or being accustomed to it is probably the better way to phrase that. And 
when it does come to a time where there is a physical setback, which then brings on a mental setback and a performance setback as well, there's a lot of juggling to be going on there and it does kind of hurt them. And so teaching them young is not necessarily a bad thing. And I think when people ask me today, it's like, how did you learn to, to manage the, or look at perspective when it comes to performances? Because I didn't start out good. I, mm-hmm. I sucked. And uh, that's great because I never got used to winning and I got used to problem solving independently. And so that's a great skill teacher because realistically, when it comes to going into the long haul of the sport, you got to have that in your toolkit. And mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's tough when you get exposed to a lot of winning early and ultimately everyone bases your identity off your talent. And that's a, that's a dangerous game as you, as you've kind of alluded to there. So mm-hmm. I, I like what you said though, making the distinction between foot contacts and kind of more of the complexity of the angles as you progress through your class that you're working with. So I'm guessing with those freshmen, those younger people, you are just working on postural control and, and foot contacts. And is that kind of more from a standing stance where, you know, the, let's say demand on the body is, is lesser than perhaps with the run-in and so forth? Um, so I, I'm not a fan of the standing triple jump. Okay. Um, because in that triple jump, you're trying to establish speed. Mm-hmm. And so to do that, you have to manipulate your posture mm-hmm. to a, a positive angle, mm-hmm. which defeats the whole purpose of a triple jump. Mm-hmm. Triple jump is a game of who can keep their posture the longest and, and find in time the correct angles. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, I typically will start athletes with a two-step or three-step. And when I say steps, I mean physical steps, not strides. Mm-hmm. Um, and they'll do two or three and they just progress through. Um, but when it comes to long and triple, the progression I really start with is getting them to accept jumping and landing, you know, accepting landing on the same leg, accepting throwing their body into the sand. Um, you know, I do understand that there's all different types of sand, you know, it's like creating the environment of maybe as a coach, you got to dig up the sand and and water it down, make sure that it's soft for the kids, because if they don't, then they're going to land on their feet. And you're going to create that habit or they hit the tailbone wrong. So, you know, when it comes to the, the takeoff for the triple jump for the beginners is I really just focus on the bounding, mm-hmm. bounding, bounding, bounding. And so, um, you know, now that they're in alignment, I teach the timing and how to use the levers. And I think the secret, the secret sauce that I use is I have them compare what they're doing versus um, what's slowing them down you know um, I have a video teaching the triple jump um, that's doing really well and it's super old but it's doing really well still and it's you know um, trying to jump with no levers versus trying to jump with levers levers meaning your arms and your legs versus not having that momentum swing Mm -hmm. and there's a difference so now all I've done when they jump with levers and without is now they have their own awareness of Ah, so I, I'm essentially giving them the freedom to think on their own. Every drill that I do, my intention is I'm just leading you to, to the water and it's your job to drink. But I put a cup there for them 
And I say, okay, here's water. You taste it. Good. I put the cup down, put the water back in, you know, in the lake or whatever and say, okay, now let me see you drink without the cup. Naturally, they're going to say, well, the cup is easier. I don't have to. And then they make that decision. So now it's enabling them to make their own choices under the, uh, under a, like a structured environment. And I think what that does is give them so much more patience and they trust and feel safe in that space. Yeah. I've, I've heard many great coaches talk about them being a facilitator versus like someone who is controlling all that is happening because it alludes to the idea that the athlete is the, the problem solver or, or the solution is, is probably the way I would look at it. And I like the way you're feeding them different kind of, scenarios or environments where that can kind of dawn on them what variables are affecting efficient movements and and what aren't that's that's really cool i've never heard about uh using it with uh no no levers and so if you you can plug that video uh, what is it what is it called teaching the triple jump teaching the triple jump okay with no yeah. did you say with no levers or is that included in the title at all um, no, just teaching the triple jump. And then it's uh, a facet of the video. Okay. Cool. It's probably the second, the second, uh, section of that video, but yeah, my videos are short. So it's probably, you know, one minute in <laughs> and explain. So, yeah, no, I think that that's great. And so when you're moving through the kind of ranks of your progression, so to speak, um, does the emphasis continue to be placed on bounding or do you start to spend more of the time on the higher intensity forms of course bounding can take place from a very remedial stance right and mm-hmm. in terms of how fast you're moving forward and how much height you're you're covering and then of course you're probably not doing this but some nca coaches you know will use box where the drop height is of course greater and so the demand on the body is a two but yeah just kind of Walk me through how that uh, unfolds, so to speak, as your classman uh, progresses. Um, so let's say we have a freshman that comes out uh, right when track and field starts. Uh, we'll go through that progression I expressed earlier. And then the next year, um, you know, we start with the summer camp. Um, the summer camp is where we do all of our base training. So summer camp, um, at the time, it was three days uh, in the summer. And I prefer to, you know, but I think just the way that the structure they had to, to do three days for whatever reason, um, the third day we would just do, you know, um, hip mobility, things like that. But so we would still, we do that base training and that base training would separate last year's body from this year's body for that, that child. Um, so now once we got into the, got into actual jumping, um, we would reemphasize posture and position um, and then from there, I would work on just um, the push and the knee separation within the jump and the posture. So I still want to even get into like their arm positions, you know, um, drop leg. Like I would talk about these things, but it would just come back down to the first year they were thinking the whole year, like, how do I triple jump? The next year, okay, now I want you to run and stay in alignment throughout your jump and see what comes from it. So that second year is, is basically set up for um, position and not even pawing the ground yet. We're just landing, landing flat-footed, separating the knees and staying stacked. That's mm. that second year. And 
Um, the average that I have is athletes that go about 30 feet that first year typically will jump about 34 that second year. It's about a four foot jump. And a lot of that is because now they're accepting of the motions. Um, the, the drills would remain virtually the same. Honestly, triple jump is a hop and two bounds. And once the kids understand that if we do bounding all the time, then I have to just do one bound and hop the rest of the way. And I just simplified in that aspect. Hey, you just bound. And the kids who are athletes, especially their sophomore year, they have great athleticism and they're very, very literal with what you say. So we as coaches can't use the word cycle because cycle is circular. Circular leads to over rotation. So I have the kids, I just say a triangle, even though it's, it's a different version of a triangle, but they push the ground away, they put their leg into the bounding position. So their hop leg moves into the bounding position and they bound the rest of the way. And that responds, they respond well to that. Mm. Um, and then, you know, I'm pretty calm, but when we need to learn something, I strategically use uh, different tones in my voice. I speak stern. Um, there's no need to yell in my philosophy, but I let them know this needs to happen, you know, because of their results in long jump. If they are long jumping, say 13 feet, great. Give me 10 feet per jump. That's 30 feet. So you need to land right here. Mm-hmm. And some of them get scared, scared, some of them get fired up. Either way, the result is still welcoming and they get to that point. And then um, that's pretty much that sophomore year focus is just that. Um, now, enter junior year. We've had, this, we had two off seasons and this is our, and we had two years of jumping. One year of just doing it, the next year of learning the motions. Now we're getting into all right, um, positions, angles. Now we're deconstructing the triple jump itself. Now we're doing hop to step. Great, you wanna jump how far? 40 feet, great. You need to be jumping at least 14 feet on your hop. You should be jumping at least 17 feet in long jump. Great, so let's start to do those things. We work on our speed down the runway. We work on, um, now we have expectations on, okay, you're bounding, you need to be here and this many bounds. If you're not here, go back, try it again and we keep, reinforcing, you know, those things. Um, still, no of those really high technical uh, drills. Took the box the box things out. I have a video of me jumping and bounding um, onto the boxes and down all that stuff. Uh, too much risk for the reward for adolescents. They're, they're just too young. Um, you know, mind you, they forget to like, they leave their clothes on, on the field every single day. Like those little things, is why I say I don't really bring too many implements into the, onto the track um, just for safety. But that junior year is where we start to really dive into deconstructing the jump um, and the landing piece. And then senior year is um, putting everything together. So I basically put them on that four-year plan of, of that. But ironically, it's, you might, out of 10 practices, we might spend the first year all 10 on bounding and position. The sophomore year will spend seven on position and then three on uh, some technical pieces of slowing down, 
um, deconstructing something. Junior year, it's about 50-50. Senior year, it's about 30-70, where it's a lot of technical pieces. Um, and um, switching things up, like if they are starting to go from a 36-foot board, well, I'll put a 45-foot board down and say jump. And it just, it pushes their threshold of what's real. Mm. You know, Dominique Quitolo, she had to jump through 36-foot board her senior year. She had to. She couldn't go from 32 because she was jumping 17 feet in her hop, you know, and getting out of it. And so when she got to state, it was easy. She just knew this is the board that I go from. Um, but yeah, so that's the kind of the progression I go through with boys and girls. It's a lot of just keeping it super simple. And we just keep the same reps over and over again. Um, yeah, I can pause it there. I really like some of the insights you gave there, Keenan, just with the ability to kind of push the envelope over time with regards to the intensity of your training and how athletes will go from prioritizing maybe some of those basic concepts and then how you tease out ways to challenge them in training as well. How that essentially kind of risk-taking ability comes into play and an understanding also of where they need to be within certain performance markers mm -hmm. as, it, as it pertains to their event. That must keep it pretty you know, fun for them, but also it's kind of at a, at a, at a appropriate time, if you will, where you've spent enough, I guess, yeah, time on, on the fundamentals where it doesn't come prematurely. And so you're not, you're not concerned as much at that point with the mechanical breakdown and uh, you're then allowing them to see their goals manifest as well, because everything that you're describing, it seems to me, with where you want the hop to be, the long jump to be, the bounding markers to be, it's, it's coinciding with an overall target that, that they've set, so mm -hmm. to speak. So I, yep. I, re I really like that as well. So when you're looking at the senior triple jumper, the ones who are getting more engrossed in the technical details, do you believe that pelvic posture is something you're still looking at at that time? Is it something that you pretty much put at the forefront of your, I would say, triple jumping in, in, in terms of your coaching? Because I find at least just from my observation is that those who are very well coached at a high school level, when they transcend into basically collegiate competition, that they are very neutral and know the awareness of how to keep that pelvis in that position if if that makes sense yeah um the the pelvis posture starts their sophomore year typically um because again like each each year is a different conversation um but my biggest jump with really enforcing the posture position uh again was with dominique um you know because in 2017 they were homeschooled and I basically raised them during that time frame, but we got a lot of training in and I wanted to make sure that we didn't overtrain. But the part that we did extra was uh, a lot of mental like training. Mm -hmm. And besides that, it was a lot of um, 
Corbin. And so we really followed a lot of Dan Paff's ideology when it comes to the core, stability, uh, understanding that the core isn't just your six pack in the front. Mm-hmm. It's the whole truck, it's the, the, whole, uh, the whole hip girdle and all the stabil- stabilizing muscles around it. And so um, her gap year, when she graduated in 2017, Dominique did a gap year where she didn't go to school at all. And she trained because she was debating on going pro or going to college. Mm-hmm. And um, we said, we can try it. You know, we have the opportunity to try it. And I, I had the schedule and the resources to do it. I do not recommend a gap year if you don't have every single piece available. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even ways of study. Like I had to give her assignments and et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, but I said, you've got to do Pilates. And I kind of just outsourced it because I didn't feel like going through that process. And I just needed her to be with another woman. Mm-hmm. I needed her to, you know, have someone else to talk to instead of being under me the whole time. Because when you're in your gap year after college, you don't have any friends. All your friends are gone mm-hmm. to college, you know. So um, Dandi over at, um, I'll, I'll plug her information later, but she's a, a great. I went through a uh, class with her and I, I couldn't do anything. <laughs> but uh, in the end, Dami was able to just hold certain positions. You know, um, she was aware of where her hips were going, how to time things, how to time things correctly. Um, and so I really realized, okay, I get to bring that down to the younger, younger levels. Um, now I can't expect them to know the motor skill, but I can plant the seed and let them know, okay, you see how you're standing and they will adjust some of those things and just, um, shift their posture angles while they're standing just to wake it up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as they're progressing, like all the attributes needed are going up levels each year. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah. And so now with the athletes, that's a huge part is that posture piece. But just like anything, a motor skill is they hear you as a coach. I know exactly what you're saying, but the muscles aren't firing and my brain can't connect to that pattern of movement. Mm -hmm. So like, I I think through images. So I always picture, remember those like old school telephones where you would like pick up the phone and there's a person that's actually an operator who would take the plug out and plug you into the person that you're trying to call, Mm -hmm. you know? And so in my mind, I never get frustrated at the result of the athlete because it's not their result. It's my result. So if I'm telling them something and they're showing me, that's not it. I say, okay, I gave them that result. So I get to rephrase what I'm saying to see if the result that I have in my head can match to me can match up to what they're showing me and so what i do to find that is i counter everything the kids do so if a kid is towing because they're a gymnast get off your toes they don't know what that means (laughs) gymnasts have no idea get off your toes what does that mean so then i tell them i need you to land on your heel now obviously that's not the most ideal thing would it be flat-footed but flat-footed is not the same so I counter each piece so when it comes back to their their posture is I understand that they might not know about it so I counter it by bringing them aware um, about what it is and then the great thing is because I have a program 
they can see what that posture looks like each time. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's planting the seed, you know, watering it every once in a while. And then when they're ready, we tap back into it, but it's already been fed this whole time. I li- I really like that from the kind of over cueing almost of a movement you'd never recommend someone to do, but for the right type of person who's kind of ex- excessively going the other direction, it is appropriate at that time. And I've heard many coaches and seen them do it too. And it, it is interesting how some of the most obscure sets of mm-hmm. cues work on on an athlete and that's just a bank of knowledge that you build up over time when you when you get a variety of individuals kind of show up at the track i'd imagine but yeah. i i guess one of the ways in which i'm thinking that sort of methodology might be applied to posture is if someone's excessively arching would you start to kind of have them think about rounding it or doing the opposite going from anterior to posterior um okay so are you talking about arching through the jump or arching just i suppose yeah through the through the jump um and and coming maybe maybe there's a bit of it showing on the runway too um okay so a person who's arching typically means that their their hips are uh rotated forward Mm -hmm. um so what i would do then is they're not aware to move their hips to neutral Mm-hmm. So what I would do is I would have them lean back and bring their knee higher. So I would explain for them to when they're in their bounding position, I need the lead leg, um, the, the drive knee in front to be higher than the back leg. Mm-hmm. So they, I, was, I would simply keep them in their posture, but move their whole body in time and space up two to five degrees. Mm-hmm. And what it does from there is it's going to uh, take away from their push. But mm-hmm. I explain that to them. We're gonna adjust your posture. It's gonna take away your push, which means you have less power, less speed. Mm-hmm. We're gonna stay there until you open up and become more flexible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and then they go, okay, I got it. So when they hit those marks that are less than, they, they understand. But that's really why I deconstruct the jump so much because they don't have anything to compare to. You know, um, my progression throughout this, the season for triple jump is athletes will start at six steps. And then as they master those movements, we back up to 10. Mm-hmm. And then if they're new, they'll probably stay at 10. And um, a lot of coaches have different views. They say you want to start at full approach because you have more reps at full approach. And I understand that. However, I just know, know when I was a little kid on a bicycle, I don't want to hop on a bicycle going as fast as I can. And I don't. It's scary. So I'm going to do everything I can to slow down. And that creates toe landing. That creates, you know, missing my step phase, over rotation, all those things. So it's like, I want to start slow and get that feel for it. But also when I am going slower, I have more time to create the power that I'm needing. I, I had that I need. I also have more time to get the levers to activate and swing through. You know, I have more time to be aware if my hips are out of posture or in or in position. Um, all these things that I would think about can happen um, through. And then one huge part that I, I haven't talked to is we really train the glutes a mm. lot. The the glutes are what helps the external that that push 
that drive through the back is to follow through. Um, I might have this specific number incorrect, but um, Rick Stasi had let me know that 60% of your explosive power comes from your Achilles, but you cannot use it if you don't have complete triple extension. Mm -hmm. And so I looked at as at, looked at at it as like basketball. If you're shooting a basketball, you have your natural follow through. Your wrist mm -hmm. follows through. Well, imagine shooting a basketball and not having a wrist to shoot to follow through. Mm -hmm. The ball is going to be catapulted versus you know touched. Mm -hmm. Well, our ankle operates in the exact same way. So if we're able to have that extra power and our glutes fire. The, um, the hips extend all the way through. Then we have the knee that finishes through. Then the ankle follows through there. That's where so much more power comes into play. And so that's where, that's like that senior level. It's like, we really gotta make sure that our Achilles and our propulsion muscles, our soleus is trained and in, in, in the correct spot. Um, and so that's a part of that lever talk. It's part of that talk about, you know, position and all those extra details that the latter part of the junior year or senior year that they get to have. I like how you're kind of configuring that idea there from like very fundamental ways. And also from a technical standpoint, you're talking about, I guess what I was doing when I described that was just like isolating the pelvis itself, but you've kind of looked at it from a technical standpoint and how addressing other parts of the body will actually fix the pelvis in a way that you want as well. And I like how you communicate that, hey, this is what this might do to your marks. And this is what it might do for a feeling that you've become very accustomed to feeling. Here is why it is necessary for the greater good. And mm -hmm. I'd imagine, again, that kind of goes back into that trust process with regards to how they're going to buy in. Yep. The, the, the thing, so I majored in communications. Mm -hmm. I chose not to major in kinesiology because I felt that there was a capital T truth. And they were telling me, you move your arms this way and that's the only way to run fast. And so I said, I don't agree. So I then said, okay, well, what else can I do while I'm here? I got to graduate still. And so communications, I understood the, the, the power of our word the power of um, our, yeah, our words and the impact that it has. And so we as coaches, yes, we are the authority. We are the, the providers and the safety of, of these athletes. However, we're also their friends. We're also, you know, alongside them on this journey. We're also, you know, just, their peers when it comes to they can come to us and talk to us about how they feel and whatever else and when that safe space is created the athletes will do actually more for you mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know and um i had a coach in high school dean went there he didn't know at all anything about the triple jump but he believes in me and he would tell me i don't know what i'm doing but just try this and i respected him more than some other coaches that i had that said because i said so Mm -hmm. I've had coaches that told me do this do that and I was I would ask why in a sense of well 
what is that going to do for me so I can apply it? But I, I would get a response as if, could, like you're asking me questions, you're questioning what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the old school version of coaching. You know, I did football, I did basketball. I, 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 I've been yelled at so many times. It's, you know, as an athlete, it, it's normal. Yet in, in track and field, it's just a different, different monster. Because um, in the team sport circuit, even though track and field is a team sport, um, track and field, you are responsible for your, your weight and what you do. And so communicating with the athlete and letting them know we as a team are going to try something different. I don't know the results. I know your goals. I'm trying to do everything I can and get you there. Mm -hmm. They will open up more and be more inclined to tell you how they're feeling. They might say, hey, I don't feel good today. That's a conversation that most kids won't say unless they really trust you. Mm -hmm. um, and so that goes, again, circles back to, I don't have a set calendar of our training cycle. I have a template. And whatever is needed for that day, I pull that template out and then we, I choose from that template. You know, so today, say the goal is you know, to have you do maximum velocity speed workouts. Would you come to me and say, hey, you know, last night I was up late, last night I had a test or I had finals. We're not sprinting today, you're already stressed. I'm not gonna shock that part of the body. Why can't we do something else that might be work on your posture? You know, something different that still gets uh, an effective workout and so on. Um, but yeah, it's the way we communicate with the athletes opens up so much, so many doors. And like you said, if I see something, I don't want to correct the issue. I want to correct the source. Right. And so the lazy way of coaching, which is a lazy way is a good thing, is I'm trying to find the easiest way to get this, to the result without doing a bunch of work. So if you watch my videos, you see a lot of my athletes have horrible landings. It's not my job. My job is to get them to college. <laughs> my job is to build the foundation so that they're ready to go to the next level. And then that next level can get into whatever they've trained. And I noticed that there's a difference in the coaching philosophies um, at the college level. And I decided I'm going to do the things that are missing back to that counter upset suggestion, right? And to build the base to where the athlete is sustainable and durable. So when they show up to the college level, they're able to perform even if the coach is busy, they can still perform at a, at a very high level. Um, pretty much everything that I've gone through in my journey, <laughs> I'm giving to the kids because I've had some coaches that weren't there all the time. I've had coaches that were there all the time. And so I just want to be able to get the kids to where they can go and they can feel if I don't get any coaching at all, I'll be able to still perform at a great level to my standards. That's Beautifully <laughs> articulated. Beautifully articulated. And I can 100% agree with you when it comes to talking about a coach who actually cares and maybe they lack some of the knowledge that you would expect from someone who you would have as your coach but because of that personal relationship that you build with them there is more value held on or or even just a greater sense of respect for that individual and what that can 
do is extremely powerful from there on. And what you can accomplish with an individual like that is massive. And of course, the ideal sense is when you have both, right? You have someone who can communicate, but also someone who knows the event discipline inside out. And for sure, the more humility and the more levels that you can speak to them on when necessary, the better you can cultivate a a long-lasting relationship, I believe. And I think what you're talking about there with regards to an athlete's ability to kind of self-navigate the the collegiate scene or or find their best performance through the coaching that you've exposed them to and and so forth is is a really nice uh, you know philosophy to have and of course there are incentives to go away from that and produce results immediately but what you're going to get is a much better long-term product at the end of it i can imagine through just having the fundamentals down and I really, really appreciate you taking the time, uh, Keenan, to talk to us about what that looks like from a high school athlete's life cycle, if you will. At this time, I'd really like to kind of give you the opportunity to share a little bit about your social media websites, like your Instagram and your YouTube page. And I know you have a track club that you coach as well. Uh, a little bit about the brand, so to speak, so that we can get the name out there. Okay. Um, Leap Squad Track Club is the club team. Uh, LEAP stands for Lead, Elevate, Achieve, and Prevail. So those four pillars are what I focus on. And I truly believe that um, the results of athletes are a reflection of their confidence and attitude. And so um, it's about character development and the results that I've been able to witness, and I say witness because they're the ones doing it, have been remarkable and um i've i just keep those that mentality set is within there Um, we have in-person training and club team um in southern california and santa Ana, and then i also have virtual coaching um same program same results and i have athletes canada um, oregon arizona um, all that. So, you know, you're welcome to be a part of that pro- the program as well. Um, what else? KeenanBriggs.com is where my website and I'm going under another reconstruction in the next few months with um, being able to showcase a lot of the services that I offer. And then uh, YouTube, KeenanBriggs.com. If you don't know the spelling, uh, you can just type in KeenanBriggs to the best of your ability and type in triple jump or long jump and you'll find a video. Um, I think I have a thousand videos online and growing. Um, Instagram, Keenan Briggs, all the social media platforms. Um, they're all a little bit different. So I invite you to be a part of all of them. And um, any questions you have, I'm always open to it. Any questions that are different, I will create a video for because um, I want to make sure that I have all the content out there for you guys and educate as many people um, as possible who are in the space of wanting to learn additional information. And the last thing is I just feel that I've categorized myself as a college prep coach um, because I mentor the parents on how to manage athletes if they do multiple sports, um, exposure to college, how to get into college. I've had athletes that have negotiated their own scholarship 
um, how to make that happen. And just a lot of resources outside of the norm that are available, especially with um, college coaches and high school coaches that have reached out to me just for another set of eyes for their athletes to develop. And athletes have made nationals, improved three feet, one foot, one state, um, all these things. And I've never met these people in person. So um, I'm essentially just a tutor to the athlete, just an extra set of information. And um, yeah, and I, I enjoy doing it. I'm building the brand even bigger than better than what it was before. And um, I just really enjoy this and seeing young athletes um, feel empowered and living a life of peace, love, and abundance. It, so it sounds like you've helped an awful lot of people from you know the right array of services that you offer and you know as i started this podcast off with the flashback to to the 15 year old self which was me looking at your athlete videos as you were kind of at that stage in your your journey and it's it's beautiful to see what sport can do really in that you went from an individual who was pursuing their own thing and was now consulting in so many different facets of people's individual journeys and ultimately allowing them to as you said live um fulfilling lives so i really do love hearing that that's that's amazing and i i wish you all the best for the growth of the brand and uh all that you're doing up in uh, santa ana and i want to thank you keenan for coming on and, and talking with me on the track and field performance podcast and allowing me to take a different scope of how athlete preparation is is looking from multiple different levels and particularly when it comes to the triple jump so i really do appreciate your time this this late afternoon now and uh thank you thank you for having me and keep up what you're doing you're doing a great job with getting multiple multiple perspectives and ideas and it's it's always for the good it's always for the good Absolutely. So folks, if you've uh, enjoyed this episode, feel free to head on over to keenanbriggs.com and uh, access all of the great resources that he has on availability. And if you're out there in the competition season or just training, preparing for the outdoor season, best of luck and we will talk to you again very soon. Thank you. Thanks again for taking time to listen to the Track and Field Performance Podcast. I hope it was both enjoyable and educational. If you'd like to support the podcast, there are many ways in which you can do so. You can head on over to patreon.com and enter the username TNF Performance. There you can leave a donation of your choosing. In addition, you have the opportunity to leave a review on the podcasting platform of your choosing. All support is appreciated, guys. Until next time, take care.